Well, open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 6. Turn your Bibles to Revelation and the sixth chapter. Out of all the sins that mankind commits against God, there may be no sin that shows more clearly the hatred of mankind for God than the murder of God's children. All the way back in the beginning, Cain slew Abel. And so that bloodshed has continued down throughout the ages with the righteous men of God, prophets, being put to death by those who could not stomach hearing the word of God or to see the lives of God's children on display in contrast to their own love for darkness. The murders of God's children must be avenged at some point in history. You cannot attack God's family and expect Him to not respond. And God has set a time in history when He will judge the world for their mistreatment, their abuse, their false imprisonment, and their judicial murders of God's children. And when God brings that wrath upon the world, it will be fierce. It will be the wrath of the Almighty, unmixed with any mercy God has held it back for a long time, and God has destined this world for a time of increased persecution against his children before the fullness of his wrath is poured out after they have filled up the measure of their sin. That's where we are in Revelation chapter 6. Last week, we looked into the fifth seal there in verses 9 through 11, and today we're going to then see as a result of the world filling up the measure of their sins against God by their mistreatment of his children, the sixth seal is unleashed by the Lord Jesus Christ in response to the cry of the martyrs in the fifth seal. Let's read the text together there. Revelation chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 12, and we'll look at verses 12 through 14 to begin with. When he, that is Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. We'll stop there for now. It's at this point in the interpretation of the book of Revelation that we come to somewhat of a watershed, somewhat of a breaking point as to which direction we're going to go in our interpretation of the book of Revelation. We've already begun with the first five seals to discuss a futurist interpretation of the judgments that are contained in chapter 6 and following in the final book of the Bible. But The sixth seal in particular presents us with difficulties and problems in interpretation. How we handle this is going to very much determine our course for how we read the rest of the judgments that are to follow in the book. One commentator, one preacher who I enjoy listening to, who's not a dispensationalist and not a futurist when it comes to the book of Revelation identified this as a true watershed in how we understand the book of Revelation, and I agree. What are the difficulties that are here for us in verses 12 through 14 as we just read it? Well, the first one 
is how do we know what is symbolic in the book of Revelation versus what is a more literal description of some cataclysmic future judgment? That is one of the difficulties here in the text. What does it mean for the moon to become blood red, for the sun to become black as sackcloth, for the stars of the sky to fall to the earth, and for the sky itself to vanish like a scroll that is being rolled up? Are those literal descriptions of phenomena that are going to take place in the future? Or are they symbolic of just the end of the world type of mindset? The sky is falling, as we say. We use terminology like that, that we don't mean literally the sky is falling, but what we mean is that everything that is permanent, everything that is a normal part of our everyday life seems to be shaken. Is this to be understood literally? Is this to be understood symbolically? And good preachers will go either way on that issue. The second difficulty that confronts us then in this text that is much related to whether we see these as symbolic or more literal descriptions of actual events in the heavens, the sky, is what is the chronology of the book of Revelation? Does the book of Revelation start in chapter 6 to unfold a chronology that leads up to the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 20 and all of that just one event after another in a strict chronological order, as most futurist interpreters of the book of Revelation have traditionally read it? Or does the book of Revelation follow more of a cyclical pattern where it describes something and then gives more details and then comes back and describes it again in a different way? What's the proper way of reading chapters 6 through 16 with the judgments that are contained in the seals, which we've begun to look at, the trumpets, which will be in chapter 8, and then the bowl judgments, which come towards the end of this section? The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they've got a lot of commonality among them. And so some Bible teachers will say, well, these are describing the same events, just describing them in slightly different ways. And while there is an intensification, that basically you just have this cycle that John is going through in the book. Others will say, no, it is to be understood sequentially, that the seals come first, then the trumpets, and then the bulls, and that this corresponds to the final years before Jesus Christ comes back, which we've commonly taught as the 70th week of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9 and the three and a half years being the the second part of that 70th week of Daniel as described in the book of Revelation. So there's issues of what is symbolic and what is literal, and then there's issues of chronology in the book that really come to the fore here in our interpretation, particularly of verses 12 through 14. As we look at these amazing and awesome judgments in chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, A lot of questions come to our mind. What would cause these events if they are literally occurring on the world during that time? Are they happening at the same time? Are they sequential, one happening after the other? Are they related to some kind of nuclear holocaust that comes upon the world? Is the whole world affected by this or just part of it? And is this describing the same thing as the trumpets and the bowls later? Are they overlapping? We have so many questions that we want to try to answer, and it is a challenge. It is difficult. It's not an easy study this week. So let's take a look then at these judgments one by one, 
and get the details together, comparing it with what we have read and known and understood from the Old Testament prophets and from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse, and then try to make some kind of conclusion about how to properly understand the sixth seal here in Revelation. The first item on our list is this great earthquake, a mega earthquake as it is described. Now, Earthquakes are very common in the Bible when talking about the arrival of God for judgment or just the arrival of God to display his power and his glory. And so it's not surprising here that the earthquake is a part of this whole cataclysmic picture that is portrayed for us here in these verses. And Earthquakes will figure later in the book as well. And so we have to wonder, is it the same earthquake that's being described again later, or are these a series of earthquakes that are taking place in the final years? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, verse 13. Moving forward to the events surrounding the resurrection of two prophetic witnesses. We'll get to the two witnesses and answer more questions about them. But for now, I just want you to notice in verse 13 that at the hour that these men are raised from the dead, there was a great earthquake, the same phrase, great earthquake, and a tenth of the city, probably Jerusalem here in context, fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So here's an earthquake, a great earthquake. Is this the same great earthquake that's being described in chapter 6? Well, that's one of the questions that we have, and we'll try to come to a conclusion on that. But come also with me to chapter 16, Revelation 16, verses 17 to 20. Here in Revelation 16, 17 to 20, the title in the ESV translation for this paragraph is the seventh bowl. As I said, we have the seal judgments, we have the trumpet judgments, and we have the bowl judgments, seven of each, described throughout the book in in that order, seals, trumpets, bowls. And the seventh bowl is described in verses 17 through 20, which I want to read to you, and you can see how similar it is to the language that we have with the sixth seal. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. They were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and what? A great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the fury of the wrath. And every island fled away, that's also described in the sixth seal, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell, and the people cursed God for the plague of the hail. So you've got the earthquake, you've got the mountains and the islands fleeing away. Is this the same earthquake being described earlier? Is it a later earthquake? This one is described with the intensity as such as has never been since man was on the earth. And so if it's the same one, well then that one in Revelation 6 also would be described by this phrase. If it's a different one, well then the one earlier would not have been as powerful as this later one. And you see, Earthquakes are a big part of God's judgment, not only in the book of Revelation, but also in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 38, Haggai chapter 2. And so most people will understand the earthquakes in the book of Revelation as literal earthquakes. 
This is not just symbolic language to describe the unsettling of the mindset of people during a a tumultuous and difficult time, but that, no, John is actually prophesying literal earthquakes. I think that's pretty well agreed upon by most fair-minded commentators. The second element in the judgments in chapter 6 with the sixth seal is the darkening of the sun. Come back to chapter 6, verse 12, and you see the sun became black as sackcloth. Now, this is where it becomes a little bit more difficult to know. Is this literal or is it figurative? Black as sackcloth, this this black cloth, that's pretty dark that we're talking about here with the sun. If this is literal, what would cause the sun to be darkened in this manner? Could it be volcanic ash in the atmosphere as a result of the seismic activities, the earthquake producing the volcanic eruptions that would darken the sky with the volcanic ash around the world? Could it be something related to nuclear fallout and a darkening of the sky because of global nuclear holocaust? Could it be just a reference to a total eclipse of the sun that's often in scripture God uses eclipses as a sign of his judgment and his wrath upon the earth. God created the sun, the moon, and the stars for signs. And could it be just talking about an eclipse of the sun that would portend fateful events upon the earth? We don't know. Speculation is fine. If you want to say, well, I think it's a volcano, or I think it's nuclear war, or I think it's an eclipse, you can have your opinion and you can have your viewpoint, but just recognize that it is speculation. And it is your opinion, and that it's not demonstrably proven from the text. The text just says the sun becomes dark. And so you can state the sun becomes dark. Exactly how it becomes dark, well, the text doesn't say that. And so we want to be careful with our speculations. We don't even know if this is literal or figurative until we do more work and more research. But for now, I want you to just note Isaiah chapter 50, verse 3. You don't have to turn to this one. We'll be turning to a lot of passages in our Bible this morning because I want you to see them in their context. We don't have time for all of them. Just to remind you, here we are, the fifth seal last week, the cry of the martyrs. The sixth seal is this global catastrophe in the sky, on the earth. And then the seventh seal we'll talk about as we continue on. But as I said, as we look at these cosmic disturbances, Isaiah chapter 50 verse 3 also speaks in similar language of the heavens, including the sky and the moon and the stars, being clothed with blackness, making sackcloth, using that imagery of sackcloth that is also drawn upon here in Revelation chapter 6. So the blackness of sackcloth, this is prophetic language that's from the Old Testament. That doesn't mean it's not literal. It doesn't mean it is literal. It means we've got to go back and look at the Old Testament in its context to try to decide whether or not it was literal then or whether it was symbolic then and then make a determination as to how John is using it in his own context. Now, when Isaiah speaks about it in his time, he's speaking in the context of God's almighty power, that God is the one who has the power to do whatever he wants in the sky or on the earth and that he has power that no human being has, that no human being ever has or or will have. And it's related to God's power to dry up the sea. Right before this verse in Isaiah 50, he talks about how God is able to dry up the sea like he literally did in history when he parted the Red Sea and allowed his people to walk through on the dry ground. So 
The fact that God is referencing his power to actually make changes in the earth and in the sky leads me to think that this is talking about a literal historical event and not just a symbolic metaphor for the darkening of our hopes and dreams or something along those lines. Now, as we think about the darkening of the sun, we also want to look at the trumpet judgments in chapter 8. So look at chapter 8, verse 12 with me. From Revelation 6, you turn over a page or two to get to chapter 8, verse 12. And here we have the seven trumpets. And in verse 12, the fourth angel blows his trumpet. And what happens? A third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And so, naturally, the question is, is this related to what's happening in chapter 6 as would support the idea that we have a recapitulation, that really the, the trumpet judgments are just retelling the story that was in the seal judgments, but including some new information or an intensification of some of those details. However, we're going to see that the bowls also have to do with darkness upon the earth, and so we are going to have to gather more data before we're able to make a determination of the relationship of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and particularly this sixth seal, which is, is one that is very difficult to understand exactly how it relates to the rest of the book. All right? So I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but we will get to an answer. The third detail that I want us to look at then is the moon, back in verse 13 of chapter 6. Come back to verse 13 and you see, excuse me, verse 12, the end of verse 12, the full moon became like blood. This blood moon, a dark red full moon, what are the natural causes of that kind of phenomena? Well, it could again be an eclipse, can cause the moon to take on this color, and it could be a, a sign in the heavens that is portending God's judgment upon the earth. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. Let's go back to Isaiah. This is where our scripture reading was from earlier. And it's one of the key passages that relate to this idea of the the darkening of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And particularly notice verses 21 to 23. Isaiah chapter 24, verses 21 through 23. Notice what God says about this day of the Lord. Now, if you're interested in the further detailed study of Isaiah 24, my message on that is on the website. In fact, Isaiah 24 through 27 is a very significant part of Isaiah's book for the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Isaiah 24 through 27 has rightly been called a miniature apocalypse. It's a four-chapter version of the whole book of Revelation. And so if you really want to understand Revelation, you want to understand Isaiah 24 through 27. And what we have here in Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 23, is very relevant to Isaiah 6. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So this day of punishment against the host of heaven, that would include Satan and his angels, and the kings who are on earth, 
As we read through Revelation, we find out that's exactly what takes place in the book of Revelation. It's the day of the Lord where God punishes both Satan and those heavenly rebels and the earthly rebels, the rulers on the earth, and they're going to be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. Now, that happens at the end of the great tribulation. When Christ comes back, he throws Satan into the bottomless pit, and he confines him there for a thousand years. After many days, then Satan is punished. So you have the thousand-year kingdom, and then the punishment of Satan. And notice it says, then the moon. So does that indicate that the moon and the sun are going to be darkened, confounded, that the heavens are going to vanish away at the end of the millennium, which would correspond with our futurist reading of Revelation and how the new heavens and the new earth are going to be created. And so the question is, when we come to the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky and and all of this occurring in the sixth seal, what does that have to do with that judgment even after the millennium? Is this a preview of that judgment? Are these things that are similar but are not the same? How do we read those judgments in light of passages like this. Now, notice the fourth one back in Revelation chapter 6. We talked about the sun, we talked about the moon, we talked about the stars. No, we talked about the earthquake, the sun and the stars. Now, the fourth one is the stars. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that the stars are going to be darkened, like it talks about in Revelation 8.12, a third of their light being darkened? Does that talk about shooting stars and meteors like we have in Revelation chapter 8, verse 10, with a star falling from heaven and causing a lot of damage on the earth? Does that talk about angels and demons as they are often referenced as these falling stars, the fallen stars being angels and them being punished? Is it symbolic in that way or is it referring to a more literal event, either of the darkening of the stars or the shooting of the stars? You see that there's a lot of questions, a lot of different ways that people read it. Now, in order to help us answer that question, it's very instructive to go back to the Olivet Discourse once again. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. You're going to get really good at turning pages in your Bibles. Notice in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, as we walk through the signs of the end of the age, and Jesus talks about the wars that are going to take place, he talks about the persecution that is going to take place, he comes to the end in verse 29, and he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and so on. So notice that Jesus says these signs that seem to correspond very well with what Revelation 6 and the sixth seal says that the sun is darkened, the moon is not giving its light, the stars are falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's a pretty strong correlation with the sixth seal. And Jesus says that this is after the tribulation of those days. And so this is good evidence that the sixth seal is not taking place at the midpoint of the great tribulation, and then the trumpets and bowls come towards the end. But no, the sixth seal itself is looking ahead to this final moment 
before the coming of Jesus Christ, as he says in verse 30, then will appear in heaven. So once you see the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens being shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It seems to be pretty close and pretty immediate because the tribulation of those days takes place after the abomination of desolation in verse 15 is revealed. And we know that the abomination of desolation is revealed at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. And so Christ comes at the end of that. And so that is, I think, a good evidence for interpreting the sixth seal as looking at the events right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be read that way. You can read the sixth seal as if these are kind of initial judgments like this. There could be more than one darkening of the sky. There could be more than one event that shakes the powers of the heavens. And so the sixth seal could be like an initial shaking of the powers of the heavens, and then it kind of recovers, and then you have the trumpets that come and, and do it again, and the bowls that come and do it again, and, and that's right before Christ's second coming. Yeah, you can definitely read it that way. However, let's go back and take a look at another key passage in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. Come back to Joel chapter 2 and chapter 3. As you're turning to Joel 2 and 3, I'm going to put up here for you once again the correlation between the Olivet Discourse and the first six seals. The book of Joel has everything to do with the day of the Lord, and it has this same language that is being used here in Revelation chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. But before I read those, just to note here, that you've got this correlation between the Olivet Discourse and the first six seals. And the signs in heaven are what comes and leads right up to before the coming of Christ in the Olivet Discourse. And so the signs in heaven with the sixth seal could very well be the events that happen right before Christ comes back, looking ahead to that final demonstration of God's power in the sky and on the earth with that great mega earthquake. Now, in Joel... What you have is very fascinating in chapter 2, because in chapter 2, verses 30 and 31 are some key verses on the day of the Lord, quoted in the New Testament in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Let's read it here in its own context. Notice what it says in verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, you've got the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Jesus says, after the tribulation of those days, then the sun is going to be darkened. Joel says, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, the moon is going to be turned to blood and the sun is going to be darkened. And so this would be good evidence that the sixth seal could refer to an event before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and then you could have another one after the great and awesome day of the Lord with these series of judgments that do increase in their severity and their intensity. One other thing that I want you to see here in Joel chapter 2 is earlier in the chapter, Joel is describing a historic event in his own time that caused a darkening of the sky. Joel chapter 2 describes an invasion 
of locusts. And here, there's another difficulty in trying to determine, are these literal locusts or are they an army that acts like locusts? Is this symbolic language to describe an army or is this an actual locust swarm that is causing this? Either way, the earth quakes before them in verse 10. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. Notice what it says. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That is going to really be a big part of the sixth seal that we haven't yet read, but we'll reference it when we get there. But notice that this invading army also is able to darken the sun and the moon and the stars. So, in one sense, the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars is historical in the time of Joel. It's something that had already happened or was going to happen in the near future that he was prophesying. But then, far in the future, during this great and awesome day of the Lord, there's going to be another darkening. And this one is a greater day of the Lord than this Old Testament day of the Lord. So, you see that pattern in Scripture, that there can be multiple fulfillments, there can be previews, foretastes of a greater thing that God is going to do later. And maybe that's what we have with the sixth seal, that it's describing things that also are going to happen in the trumpets and bowls, but they happen in an initial way with the sixth seal earlier. So, you see, I can gather evidence for one position, I can gather evidence for another position, and then we have to weigh the evidence and say, where does the weight of the evidence support? That's what we do with goodwill towards those who disagree with us and with a humility before the text that is always trying to learn, always trying to examine, always trying to be honest and to be examining our own biases and our own desires and to allow the text to speak for itself. We want God to lead us into all of the truth in these matters. There could be more than one sky-darkening event towards the end of the age. Now, for time's sake, let's... uh, pick up our pace a little bit here, and notice that the book of Joel and what we read in Isaiah and what we read in the discourse of Jesus and what we're going to see throughout the rest of our references this morning, that they all have to do with the day, this coming day. Joel calls it the great and terrible day. Sometimes Isaiah just says, I have a day. And the day of the Lord is a key subject in prophecy, and it's very important that we understand the day of the Lord right. How you interpret the book of Revelation is going to depend a lot upon a proper understanding of the day of the Lord. And so here is my definition that I've been using for all of our studies through Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets and the teaching of Christ. And I wanted to show it you here as we are embarking on this section in Revelation. The day of the Lord is that time when God will intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom. It doesn't refer to a literal 24-hour day. It refers to a time period when God does these three things. Now notice these three things are, are kind of broad. Vindicating his people, destroying his enemies, and establishing his kingdom. Well, that's something that can take place over a rather lengthy period of time. And the day of the Lord, while Many theologians want to define it very specifically and have it always mean the same thing in every context. 
That's not the way the Bible actually uses the phrase. We've got to be careful not to make something more of a technical term than it really is, because this phrase, it can refer to one part of the period before Christ comes. It can refer to just the very last part before Christ comes. It can refer to the judgments that come even after Christ come, and it can refer to the whole future period of blessing that is a God's kingdom after he has established it. It can include the millennium, it can include the tribulation, it can even include the eternal state, that the day of the Lord, in different contexts, has a different scope, but it always has this meaning. It's when God intervenes in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom. And that can be applied narrowly, it can be applied broadly, and so we have to allow the context to determine how narrow the definition is in each passage, or how broad. But I want you to see, that's what it's about. Now, the key one that is very difficult, we've left untouched so far, the last one, back to Revelation chapter 6. We have to deal with this before we form our final conclusions. Notice it says, the sky, in verse 14, vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. So let's talk about this fifth one, the sky vanishing like a scroll. Now, what does that mean? You look up at the sky and try to picture it vanishing like a scroll being rolled up. I don't know what natural phenomena would cause that type of thing to happen. I don't even know how to visualize that type of thing happening. And so this raises questions. Could this happen earlier in the book of Revelation in the chronology? Or is this something that has to be a reference to the end, when the heavens and the earth actually vanish away and God creates a new heaven and a new earth? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, 11. After the thousand years, after the defeat of Satan, then... In verse 11 of chapter 20, John says, I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Is that what John is talking about in chapter 6, with the sky fleeing away? Is this a reference to the final dissolution of our present world and the creation of the new one that's going to take its place? Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And so there's a couple of ways that you can then go back to Revelation 6 and try to understand it. One, it could be a reference to some kind of heavenly, and when I say heavenly, I'm talking about the physical sky, some kind of sign in the sky that is hard to understand until we see it happen, that is a portents of God's judgment upon the earth, and that would also seem to give sign of a preview of that future dissolution of the sky itself at the end of the millennium, or it could be that it's actually talking about that future dissolution of the sky, and what Revelation 6 and the sixth seal is doing, it's not focusing just on a narrow time period of God's judgment, but that what it's doing is it's looking at all of God's judgments that are going to take place then in the rest of the book. It's giving a broad picture 
of the kind of worldwide cataclysm that is going to be unfolded in the rest of the judgments. So that's where it becomes difficult to say, well, are we reading it strictly chronologically, or are there passages that give a preview of what is to come and is not following a strict chronological order? It's hard to see, for me, how this passage could be something that is taking place at the chronological point that futurists would want to read the sixth seal the way they've traditionally read the book of Revelation. Now, the last one, the mountains and the islands fleeing away or being removed from their place in verse 14. This one is also challenging because in the next verse, let's go ahead and read verses 15 to 17, you see the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, if we're reading this chronologically, and in the previous verse, the islands have been moved, and the mountains have been moved, and you have this great earthquake, then how can they then respond by going and hiding in the caves and the rocks of the mountains? We've just had the mountains moved, uh, or removed, if that's the right way to understand it. So you can't go and hide in the mountains after they've been removed. So if we understand then the judgments here to not be following a chronological sequence, but instead it's like a portrait of everything that's going to take place in the coming judgment, and what we have then is a portrait of mankind's response to those judgments, then we don't have to try to figure out, well, how can God move the islands and the mountains and then people still go and hide in the mountains? Because it's not strictly following a chronological order. It's not like all of these things happen at a specific point, but that these are the types of things that God is going to do, quite literally, And this is the types of response that man is going to have to those judgments. So I believe that the proper way of reading the sixth seal is that it is a preview of everything that is going to follow on in the book. It kind of takes us right up to the second coming of Jesus Christ and even some of the events that are going to happen after the second coming of Christ. And then it's going to circle back and fill in more of the details in the trumpets and the bowls and all that is contained in the chapters in between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. So what I'm proposing is is that we don't read everything as strictly chronological, but that there is a general chronological flow to the book of Revelation. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls will all end at the same point. They're all going to end right before the coming of Jesus Christ. But they don't all start at the same point. The seals start first. The trumpets start second. The bowls start last and are there at the very end. And they do increase in intensity. The trumpets are more intense than the seals. The bowls are more intense than the trumpets. So there is a general chronological flow to the book, but that doesn't mean we have to read every verse as following strict chronology. I think that's what I've learned as I've studied the passage this week. Now, what do we take from this? We're going to save verses 15 to 17 for next week. And instead, I want to bring to a conclusion what is the meaning of the sixth seal for us, what is the application? 
As God unveils his power over the earth to be able to move what we think is immovable, as God reveals his power over the sky to be able to change what we think is unchangeable, this brings terror into the heart of mankind because mankind has chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. Think about the errors that fill mankind in our own time. The world says, this good earth that we live upon, this good air that we breathe, this clean water that we have, this wonderful temperature that is maintained throughout the troposphere, all of that is because of time and chance. We just got incredibly lucky to be able to have the planet that we live on. And God says, oh, you think it's luck that has given you all of these things? Well, let's find out what it's like to live in a chaotic universe. Let's find out what happens with time and chance. When I remove my good hand of providence and I allow the sun to be changed, I allow the earth to be changed, I allow the tectonic plates that are underneath your continents to just go, let's see what happens. God is going to bring about his terrifying judgments upon the earth because he's going to make it uninhabitable. What God gives in his love and in his grace, he can remove from the ungrateful. What God has ordered in his creation, he can disorder. He can undo all of his good actions in Genesis chapter 1 and make the world a horrifying and terrible place where men will be cowering and hiding in the caverns of the world. People say, let's worship Mother Earth. You will find out what Mother Earth will do to those who worship her. Whatever you worship, aside from God, will eventually turn on you and destroy you. Recognize that. Whatever you worship, aside from God, will eventually turn on you and destroy you. Only God is worthy of your worship. And your soul is only safe when you are worshiping God. We will find out what these judgments will be when they occur. Until that time, we should do our best to understand them. But as we're seeking to understand, we should never lose sight of the bigger picture. The themes, the ideas, exactly what God is communicating. No matter how these earthquakes and heavenly portents come out, no matter what chronology they follow in the book of Revelation, the point is God is in control and God is able to remove the stability that we rely upon for our daily lives. And he will. The sixth seal is a statement about final judgment. What's going to happen at the very end of the day of the Lord? Humanity's response we'll take a look at next week. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Father, there are things in your word that are difficult for us to understand. I wonder how much of the fault lies with our stubborn hard-heartedness. How much of the fault is because we are small of faith and slow to believe everything that is found written in your holy word. Lord, I suspect that much of our difficulty is, is not intellectual, but it is ethical. 
And Lord, as we pursue Jesus Christ and Christ-likeness, I pray then that you would open up our minds to be able to understand more of your truth as a church, not just the local church that's here, but the worldwide church, that we would be able to help one another, that we wouldn't be attacking one another, that we wouldn't be using our understanding of prophetic truth to elevate ourselves and to denigrate others. We wouldn't become proud and boastful, but that we would be humble with the knowledge that we have and we would use whatever power you've given to us to serve and to love others, to treat others the way that we want to be treated, to imagine that their motives are good when they disagree with us, when they come to different conclusions, when they weigh the evidence differently than we weigh the evidence. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are responsive to your word, that are not distracted by the details and the interpretations that are difficult, but that what is plain and obvious in your text would weigh upon us and our thoughts would be consumed with meditation upon what has been so wonderfully and clearly revealed. Lord, guide us and lead us to have the right attitude towards the book of Revelation. May we have the attitude that is pleasing in your sight, that is humble, that is teachable, that is full of faith and conviction, that acts upon what is written in order to warn those who are in rebellion against you that their rebellion is doomed and that they have an opportunity to change sides. Lord, we pray that we'd see many people change sides through our testimony and our witness to the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. We pray in his name. Amen.